Welcome to Talking Feds, a roundtable that brings together prominent former federal officials and special guests for a dynamic discussion of the most important political and legal topics of the day. I'm Harry Littman. Today marks the start of a new Supreme Court term. For over 50 years, as the court's role in American life has taken deeper root, it's been a day to anticipate upcoming cases and maybe reflect on the court's evolving role. This exercise has taken on greater gravity in the last two terms as the court's hard-right supermajority has consolidated its power, announcing dramatic changes in the areas of abortion, affirmative action, the Second Amendment, and religious freedom. The justices now seem to be contemplating an overhaul of administrative law and may also be poised to revisit long-standing precedents in the First Amendment and substantive due process. These controversial decisions, along with a series of ethical black eyes, have driven the court's public confidence to new lows. Investigative reporting has uncovered instances of largesse bestowed by conservative benefactors in particular on Justices Thomas and Alito, who have offered convoluted reasoning to justify the conduct. It's not simply the bad odor of the arrangements themselves, but the justices' high-handed reaction to the mere suggestion that they have to be more accountable that is hurting them in the public mind. The upcoming term also may see the court's involvement in significant cases tied to the all-important 2024 election, either one of the bevy of Trump civil or criminal cases or important voting rights challenges. To size up this tangled web of legal, social, and political forces and the court's place in the middle of it, I'm very pleased to welcome three of the country's most respected and keen observers of the court. And they are Daya Lithwick, a senior editor at Slate, where she writes about courts and the law and hosts the Slate legal podcast Amicus. She's an MSNBC contributor. She's also author of the book Lady Justice, Women, the Law, and the Battle to Save America, which we covered previously in our last Talking Book series, and which has just come out in paperback. Congratulations on that, Daya. That's an achievement. Good to be back, Carrie. Thanks for having me. Do you have a whole new round of PR and stuff when a paperback comes out? There's a new burst of stuff and happily a new crop of amazing women lawyers from Fonnie Willis to Tanya Chutkin to talk about. So it just keeps replicating the big Barbie energy of the book about women and the law. Next, Mark Stern, a senior writer covering courts and the law for Slate also. He's based in Washington. He's covered the U.S. Supreme Court and the federal courts and state and local courts for 10 years. He is also the author of the book. We got three guests, three books, American Justice 2019, The Roberts Court Arrives. And it's his first visit to Talking Feds. Mark, thanks so much for joining us. Hooray. Thank you for having me on. Finally, Steve Vladek, the Charles Allen Wright Chair in Federal Courts at the University of Texas Law School, the Supreme Court Analyst for CNN and co-host of the National Security Law Podcast. He's the co-author of the leading National Security Law and Counterterrorism Law Casebooks, but recently the author of a new and very influential book entitled 
the shadow docket, how the Supreme Court uses stealth rulings to amass power and undermine the republic. Steve, now did you write everything after the colon? Authors know that they don't necessarily get to control the title. We spent a lot of time on the subtitle. I think, ironically, it keeps getting more and more apropos. All right. For those of you who follow, especially Stephen Dahlia's coverage of the court, and if you don't, you should, and right away, you know they're not big fans of the conceit of a first Monday in October curtain raiser. For good reason, there's limited insight to be gleaned from the conventional soup-to-nuts surveys, or really soup-to-salad, because only the first couple sittings of the court's term are set, and because the late September surveys tend to focus on the most sort of ready-for-prime-time dramas at the cost of some of the more arcane, but more important cases on the docket. But not to worry, Steve Diamark and listeners, we're not going to take that approach. We'll look closely at a few important cases that are in the court's first few sittings, but we'll try to situate them and the discussion in the court's standing in the country and its long-range project to move the law, even the culture, uh, sharply right. I do want to begin the discussion, however, with a recent tweet from noted conservative Ed Whalen. I don't know if you guys saw it. Uh, he wrote, for judicial conservatives, this just finished Supreme Court term, and he meant the one from a couple months ago, was the second best over the past century. Last year's, that's the one that featured the overruling of Roe v. Wade, was the best. Next year's, that's the one we begin today, should be in the top three. So just in broad strokes, what about the coming term is making the right excited, would you say? I'll just jump in and say I'm a little bit surprised by that take, frankly, because this coming term is going to feature as many as seven cases from the Fifth U.S. Circuit Court of Appeals. And there is a real chance that Steve's, favorite. The, yeah. Steve's <laughs> beloved circuit, and it loves it loves him right back, you know? <laughs> exactly. There is a real chance that the Supreme Court could reverse in all of those cases. And in my view, definitely will in a majority of them. And so I actually think that much of this term will be a matter of cleaning up the mess that the Supreme Court made over the last few terms, especially when it comes to guns in the Second Amendment, um, but also in, in other areas like administrative law, where the Fifth Circuit has tried to essentially destroy the administrative state, abolish an entire federal agency. And not that the court has antipathy toward that project, but maybe it only wants to go seven-eighths of the way. Yes, exactly what I mean. And, and so, you know, the Fifth Circuit has taken these signals from SCOTUS and said, we're going to run with it. And I think this will be a time when SCOTUS will have an opportunity to step in and say, we agree philosophically, we share these goals, but we need to slow the pace of this revolution. And so I actually think there will be a few disappointments for conservatives this term. I'll just chime in to say, I agree with Mark that I think when the term is over, Ed is going to be disappointed. Maybe he can go look for his disappointment on Zillow. <laughs> But the broader point is that it has become de rigueur for conservatives to view the court simply as a means of delivering results. And so even if Ed's prediction turns out to be descriptively accurate, and I agree with Mark that I don't think it's going to be, you know, I think it's quite revealing that how good a term it is depends entirely upon how many, quote, pro-conservative, unquote, results the court hands down, as opposed to how the court either shores up or further undermines 
public confidence in the court as an institution, how the court either shores up or further undermines its relationship with the other branches of government, all of the ethics stuff that is swirling around. So it seems to me that Ed's comment is wrong in two respects. First, you know, the Fifth Circuit, which quietly had by far the worst term of any appeals court last term, I think is going to have another bad one. And second, you know, hello, the Supreme Court does a lot more than hand down merits decisions. Otherwise, all we'd be talking about so far is the 22 cases in which they've granted cert. And it's rather revealing that Ed is saying the quiet part out loud that all conservatives should care about, right, is who wins and who loses. Maybe one last take on the same point is, you know, two terms ago when Bruin came down and Dobbs came down and it was clear we lived in another universe now Mm -hmm. and there was a tectonic shift in the way we thought about the courts. That was the term of abortion and guns, right? And a lot of us said, oh, last term, the the court is going to take a big swing. They've done abortion. They've done guns. They're going to do voting, right? Except as Stephen Mark just suggested, both of those voting cases didn't turn out the way anybody expected. And certainly the folks who've been mad vote suppressors and uh, proponents of the independent state legislature theory were deeply disappointed. So ironically, this term is sort of the third leg of the stool, which is the administrative state, Chevron Doctrine, the CFPB. We'll talk about all that. But what's come back? Voting, (laughs) abortion, and guns. So it's kind of funny. Uh, You know, another way of saying what Mark said is all the stuff that was supposed to be definitively settled two terms ago and last term are just coming back, which suggests that the court is just doing like cleanup in aisle five now. Somewhat, Ed's comment, of course, is jocular in a sense, but I'll just add to it, even though it's cleanup in aisle five, it's a feature, I think, of the court. And this was very clear in the lead in to Dobbs when different courts were really playing fast and loose with the then clear law of the land that was Roe, that the court has been somewhat easygoing about some of the lower courts anticipation, say, of where they might go in a way that I don't quite remember it being, it seemed to me more canonical before that like this is the law and you you should trod the straight and, and true. We'll return to that. Let's go right now to administrative law. It's an area of very broad, if largely unseen, influence on people's lives. So we have the Loper Bright Enterprises case. Maybe I'll just ask someone to sketch out the very basic facts, but explain how that case might serve to fundamentally adjust the relationship of administrative agencies to the court and Congress, and I think weaken the administrative state. How is the so-called Chevron doctrine potentially on the chopping block in the Loper-Bright Enterprises case? So Chevron is a 1984 decision that basically says that where a statute delegating power to an administrative agency is ambiguous, court should not disturb reasonable interpretations of the statute by the agency, the idea being that the Environmental Protection Agency is better situated to resolve an ambiguity in its delegated regulatory authority than a random federal judge, especially maybe a hand-picked federal judge in Texas. Chevron has become something of a bête noir for conservatives, but I actually think the work has already been done to effectively vitiate it. The rise of the so-called major questions doctrine is actually an even more anti-agency doctrine, 
where now it's not even about whether interpretations are reasonable. Now it's just about whether the statute is remotely ambiguous. And if so, the agency loses. And the irony, Harry, to me, of the major questions doctrine is that it's turned Chevron into a minor questions doctrine because Chevron really is only left to do work in cases in which we're not applying the bigger, stronger medicine of the major questions doctrine. So I actually think on the interpretive deference front, the damage has already been done. And Loper Bright is really just sort of the last act. I think the bigger case from the perspective of the future of administrative law is the CFPB case. This did seem like a classic application of Chevron. I had recalled Chevron when it first came out as being kind of a hobby horse of the right. Maybe it's because it was the high watermark of the Reagan presidency, but you're certainly right that they, they have a big Chevron case last year, except they don't even mention Chevron. And you have both Gorsuch and Thomas at least calling for its decapitation. What's conservatives' problem with Chevron and the idea of deferring to expertise as Steve laid it out? Anybody? I mean, it's just a problem of agencies. It's a it's a problem of the administrative state. I don't think it's an intellectual problem. It's the sort of headless branch idea? Yeah, it's the idea that there is this renegade administrative state full of bureaucrats who want to take away your rights and freedoms and certainly want to take away the rights and freedoms of, say, polluters. So why not figure out a way to savage that under a sort of tortured theory of, you know, separation of powers. I think the notion that we have to sort of like have a principled through line here <laughs> strikes me as trying really, really hard. This is simply a, a way of saying we don't like federal agencies, whatever form they take. And the more we can deregulate the country, the better. That's a longstanding project. I think there is a defense of it. It's just that the defense doesn't actually withstand scrutiny, right? So the defense that is offered is that giving this kind of power to agencies is anti-democratic in the sense that no one is electing the administrator of the EPA or the deputy assistant secretary of whatever. And, and there are two, I think, major problems with that argument. The first is that this very same Supreme Court has spent so much of the last 25 years reducing the independence of the administrator of the EPA, of the deputy assistant, like sort of getting rid of the independence protections in the executive branch so that there will be more democratic accountability in the executive branch. But second, and in any event, this is not a transfer of power to Congress, right? I mean, the, the courts that rely on this often say, well, Congress is free to just, you know, be more clear in the statutes that it writes. We all know that Congress is not going to regulate with that kind of micro-level precision. On the contrary, they want the EPA to be deciding things like this, right? Well, so I think there's both a question of who's better situated to do it and whether sort of more fundamentally congressional dysfunction is itself a problem here. And so it's held out as like making administrative agencies more democratic when Dolly's exactly right. The reality is that it's just about deregulation. Not just deregulation. I think it's aggrandizing of the court's power. Here's the way that Gorsuch puts it. We should acknowledge forthrightly that Chevron did not undo and could not have undone the judicial duty to provide an independent judgment of the law's meaning in the cases that come before the nation's court. Chevron attempted to weed in our garden and uh-uh. 
Right. And I think that it's just a fundamental irony here that the conservative justices are saying, well, it's it's so wrong and so anti-democratic to place these powers in the hands of unelected BDI bureaucrats. The people who should really be exercising those powers are unelected BDI judges because we're more trustworthy for some reason, unexplained usually, but implicit. I guess I just want to sort of briefly hammer home the first point that Steve made about it's unclear exactly how much work Chevron is doing and how much of an effect overturning Chevron will have. Which, by the way, everyone agrees that's why they took this case, right? The only reason why I have a moment's pause is because the court had turned down prior invitations to overrule Chevron. And Paul Clement, who's the counsel of record for the pitchers here, wrote the question presented in a way that's a little more elliptical. But Mark is right that like the stakes of this question have gotten a lot lower since it first started getting raised about a decade ago. Yeah, there was a decision a few years ago where the court ruled 8-1 in favor of immigrants on, in some technical matter, and Alito was the only dissenter. And Alito's dissent was quite accurate in a sense, because what he said was, unless we secretly overturned Chevron and no one told me, we should have applied it in this case. And that really speaks to this very consistent trend among all of the justices left to right, where they will deal with a statutory interpretation case that feels like the heartland of Chevron, right? And they will simply pretend that Chevron Chevron does not exist and apply their own best reading and not mention the word Chevron. This ranges from Kavanaugh to Sotomayor to like they all do this. So I think that the effect of overturning Chevron will really be felt more on the lower courts where it is regularly interpreted and used in the way it was intended to. But I'd like to sort of call a political scientist and ask them to go through the data here, because my suspicion is that, say, five years after Chevron's death, judges will still be interpreting laws the same ways that they were before and that Chevron was not playing as big a role as we thought. And I should just say, I, it really doesn't matter so much what the facts are. It was a classic Chevron case, but just for people who want to want a better purchase here. So the, the rule uh, that the National Marine Fisheries Service promulgated required the fishing industry to pay for the cost of observers who monitor certain compliance. And Judge uh, Rogers in the D.C. Circuit said the statute's ambiguous and it's reasonable to assign it to the industry. All right. I had wanted to sort of blitz through, but Steve, I can't resist your point. Obviously, the CFPB case is huge for the CFPB. Can you just lay out quickly why you think it's the more important administrative law case generally, if I understood your position correctly? I mean, again, I really do think that on the deference point, the major questions doctrine is a much bigger deal and is doing every day. I mean, let's just be clear, right? The Fifth Circuit just held that the Nuclear Regulatory Commission doesn't have the power to regulate low-level radioactive waste. At some point, like, give me a break. I see. So your main point is that this, the first case is not as big as it's cracked up to be. Because the major questions doctrine is already screwing everything up six ways from Sunday. Which we can, I'll just add, is a uh, doctrine completely of their creation that no one had ever heard about five years ago. What's crazy about it is that the Fifth Circuit basically held that Congress lacked the power to fund the CFPB in the way that it did, which, as folks have pointed out, like as much as conservatives hate the CFPB, Congress funds the Federal Reserve in much the same way as it funds the CFPB. I mean, this is, you know, now we're not talking about like interpretations of statutes, right? Now we're basically rewriting the Constitution to fundamentally constrain not just what Congress has has said, but what Congress even could say, right, when it comes to the creation and funding of executive branch agencies. I will say, I share what I take to be Mark's skepticism 
that there are five votes on the Supreme Court for what the Fifth Circuit held in this case. But the fact that we're even here, right, I think is a pretty telling indictment of how far the law has moved in this space. And in brief, what they held was that the funding mechanism, which is outside of the normal process, violates the appropriations clause of the Constitution. I just wanted to make sort of the quick media criticism point that you started with and imputed to Steve and I, but I think Mark has written about this too. I think a little bit of the will he won't, he horse race coverage of will the court or will it not overturn Chevron? Will it or will it not finally do away with the lemon test? I think it's another way of distracting from, you know, as Steve says, the court has fundamentally ended Chevron deference. It has fundamentally ended the lemon test. Not writing the sentence, Chevron is here and overruled, doesn't actually change much. And as Steve suggests, and I think Mark agrees, what has happened with the major questions doctrine is so much more concerning and yet not explained or understood. So I just want to sort of re-up for listeners that part of the, is the court or is it not going to overturn Chevron this term, is a way of really narrowing the field and sort of changing the conversation into something that's kind of all but irrelevant, but certainly quite distracting from the stakes, which are actually much, much higher than whether that sentence is written. So that's not a criticism of anybody on this call, but I think it's just an ongoing problem with the way the court gets covered. And the CFPB funding case is another example of this. Assuming that the court reverses the Fifth Circuit, the headlines will all be moderate court, right? You know, moderate court does moderate things. When the the Fifth Circuit has moved the Overton window on what are viable constitutional objections to administrative agencies so far that the notion that like the court should get a participation trophy for saying, wait a second, this is going too far, again, sort of is buying into the whole frame. And we're going to have the same conversation about Rahimi in a minute. But like, I do think this is one reason why a majority, including Roberts and, and Kavanaugh and Barrett, aren't willing to really kind of scold the Fifth Circuit and reign in the Fifth Circuit and say, you need to cut this stuff out because these cases give the majority an opportunity to look more moderate than it is, like Steve said, and creates the space for a lot of mischief in the doctrine while getting the headlines that the chief wants, which is this is a moderate court and also John Roberts is in control. Yeah, look, I think it's an excellent and important point. And I'm sure there's been learning done on this, but so much of what they're about, I think, would have been a wish list and an improbable one in a Federalist Society you know, conference in the mid-90s. Mark, you certainly predicted right that we would, we would move to the guns case and Rahimi. This is actually one that I think, counter to the theme we've been discussing, it's going to get a lot of coverage in part because it's got such vivid facts and it's easy to understand. But yeah, the Fifth Circuit, can you just give us a quick skinny on it? Yeah. So in Bruin two years ago, two terms ago, the court held that any restriction on the right to bear arms for self-defense is presumptively unconstitutional unless there are a sufficient number of historical analogs from some unspoken period between 1791 and 1868. Exact dates, TBD. <laughs> 1900 is too late. 1700 is too early. There's some kind of sweet spot there. In this case, an individual was convicted under a federal law that prohibits people from possessing firearms when they are the subject of a restraining order. 
So this individual was accused of domestic violence. He was put under a restraining order, a, a civil protective order, but he still possessed firearms as law enforcement discovered. And so he was prosecuted under federal law. And the Fifth Circuit threw out that charge and said there are no laws against having a gun while being under a civil protective order from the 1800s or the 1700s. So this law does not pass muster under Bruin. And, you know, the court is quite right that there weren't such laws. That's because women weren't considered citizens with equal protection rights. That's because domestic abuse was not a crime, because it was perfectly legal in the vast majority of the country to beat and, and brutally injure your wife. And so this is a very difficult issue for the majority that backed Bruin, but now has to decide, are we actually going to embrace the consequences of that rather radical decision? Or are we going to try to pull back and make it a little more reasonable and easy to apply in 2023 when we do hopefully think think that women are equal citizens. You know, we just talked about Chevron and overturning without overturning and the major questions doctrine. This is the flip of that, right? This is like, be very, very afraid when the dog catches the car and the dog caught the car in Bruin and the Fifth Circuit literally pulled back <laughs> an opinion in Rahimi and said, oh no, what we mean is now after Bruin, and it goes to both Mark and Steve making this point about the Fifth Circuit, thinking the court is so results-oriented that if the lower courts just push them hard enough, the court will say yes. And last term seemed to me sort of natural experiment in the Fifth Circuit pushing the court too hard. Here we have a case where the Fifth Circuit was like, no, no, really, put your money where your mouth is. There was no domestic violence protective orders, either at the founding or the drafting of the 14th Amendment. So there's no protection for uh, partners of domestic violence gun possessors. And I think it's an astounding thing if you consider, you know, the number of shootings every day, the number of domestic violence episodes that we're clocking in this country. The absolute public opinion is not on board with everybody shooting stuff all the time because they can. And the court absolutely gift wrapped this for the Fifth Circuit to spike it back in their faces. So now we've got for years and years, the reason the court did not take a gun case after Heller was because Justice Kennedy was spooked. And now the question is, is there someone or there is there a fifth and six vote to be not spooked. And it seems to me that a very, very strange case to take the posture that we think that people subject to protective orders for domestic violence, who in the facts of this case are shocking, Harry. This will get very big play. In the uh, understated words of the Fifth Circuit, uh, Rahimi is hardly a model citizen. So look, let's stick with this for a moment, because the court presumably knows this. If there's a fifth or sixth vote out there to really go balls to the wall, as you might put it, I can't imagine it is this case. And, you know, this, I think, does seem to me one that they, they take to reverse, but without doing too much damage to where they've started down the road in Heller and Bruin. So what what's the court's way out here? I mean, I think this is where it's really important to separate out the six Republican appointees from each other. I think without breaking a sweat, there are three votes to affirm. And the question is, where are the other three, right? And so- And the third is Gorsuch? Yes. So I think it's really just a question of not whether the court is spooked. I think it's a question of whether two of the Chief Kavanaugh and Barrett are spooked. And, you know, there are a couple of ways out if they want to go that route. One is to sort of, you know, not disrupt Bruin's wackadoodle methodology at all and just say the Fifth Circuit applied it incorrectly, that 
you know, founding era and 14th Amendment era dangerousness prohibitions were enough of an analog, right, to sort of to justify this one. And one is to go further and to actually suggest that maybe we have to be clearer about what we did and didn't mean methodologically. And I think folks who follow this litigation, you know, this case is about the ban on possession by those under a, a domestic violence related restraining order. But there's, you know, felon in possession cases. There are misdemeanor in possession cases. Shoot, Hunter Biden is in this conversation. And so the problem with the narrow way out, Harry, is that that solves this case. It doesn't solve the next case. And so I think the question is not just whether two of the three more middle-ish slash less far-right Republican appointees want to reverse. I think the question is whether they also want to sort of send a message to lower courts or whether they're going to play this one at a time. To me, what's actually very interesting about this case and seems to come up in other areas, abortion's a, an obvious one, is a lot turns on how you define the right in question. Now, for the conservative project to succeed, it often requires a very sort of narrow definition. The, what the SG has done in her brief is to say the conviction should have been upheld because there is a history of regulation of people who are not responsible and law-abiding citizens, a, a term actually taken from Heller. But of course, the sort of ideological purists looking ahead would chafe at the notion of redefining people under domestic violence orders as non-responsible and law-abiding citizens. But the sort of unseen tussle, it seems to me, is often on the articulation of the right. To Steve's point, clarifying the Bruin test without fundamentally overhauling it does not get the court out of many of the problems that is created with Bruin. To cite just one example, there was a decision from a progressive judge in West Virginia holding that the federal law that prohibits you from scratching out the serial number on your firearm so that ATF can't track it violates the Second Amendment because there were no serial numbers on guns in the 1790s, and so there's no historical analog. Well, you can't get to the, the obviously correct answer in that case by just jacking up the level of generality until you've gotten to some extremely broad and kind of vague principle from the 1790s that you can import into today. Like, serial numbers just didn't exist. And so as long as the court is fixated on this text and history test, which even David French, who is a conservative supporter of the Second Amendment, thinks is crazy, right. they're, they're going to have to keep dealing with these wild decisions and a remarkable expansion of the Second Amendment beyond what the vast majority of Americans would want or expect. Yeah, the test itself sometimes feels benighted, I guess. Let's talk a little bit about the Alabama race and voting case, what we think is now served up. So people largely followed this. The Alabama legislature was ordered to redo its map that retained just one district that would be majority-minority, notwithstanding that the black population of Alabama is over 25%, just basically said, no, we're not gonna. So now that's gone back up. We have an automatic appeal. There's an irony here in the wake of the court's declaration that it won't try to correct gerrymandering, that the state is now coming in and arguing, no, we weren't, it was just blatantly partisan. You can't touch that, but we weren't racist. 
What does the court do now with this? What's the exact issue before them and how do they resolve it? So I think that this is, you know, people have been using the word defiance and nullification, but essentially in one of the surprise decisions of last term, right, we talked about how these two huge voting rights cases both turned into surprising John Roberts-led uh, victories for progressive challengers. And this was one where it goes back to your Ed Whelan point where we started, which is if the zeitgeist out there is just keep asking until you get the result you want, this is the Alabama legislature saying, oh, yeah, no, we read what you said in Allen versus Mulligan. We just don't care. We're not creating a second uh, minority majority district. We are not doing the thing you ordered us to do. Why? Because Justice Kavanaugh, in his concurrence in that case, which the ink is not yet dry on, said, actually, maybe there's a sell-by date, right? Maybe Section 2 of the Voting Rights Act expired sometime between when the court decided this case and when Alabama was asked to redraw their maps. And so, you know, Steve has a great piece on this today in his substack, but I think the gist of this again, is that if you think you have five votes at the court to do what you want and you don't, the new ethos is just try again. So that's what Alabama is doing. They're just coming back and saying, we think we can pick off Justice Kavanaugh this time. There's some fairly horrifying reporting out of Alabama about why the legislature, which is weirdly and creepily enmeshed with this case and funders of this case, might think they have a, a chance to flip Kavanaugh. But this is really an example of what it means to have no stability in the law such that you genuinely think that you can take a second bite at the apple and you may genuinely get Brett Kavanaugh based on either his concurrence in Allen or based on what happened in the affirmative action case to agree that remedial race legislation has a sell-by date. By the time this drops, we may already have a clue because in addition to appealing, Alabama is also asking the court once again for an emergency stay of these district court injunctions. That could come down by the end of this week as we sit here on, on September 18th. In the shadow docket. Yes. Indeed. I think Justice Kavanaugh has put himself in the middle of a trap because as Dahlia says, his concurrence in Allen versus Milligan raises this argument that Alabama had not made below even though his was the decisive vote in blocking Alabama's map. He's the only justice to vote differently on the merits in this case. And when it first came to the court as an emergency application back in February 2022, back then, his justification for stepping in had nothing to do with the merits and everything to do with the sort of notional proximity to the election. So, you know, I, I think he has a problem because on the one hand, this has only happened because of his concurrence. On the other hand, it's going to look pretty bad if Alabama is able to basically, you know, sandbag the court by not making this argument the first time around, having the justices make it for them, and then come back up on the same argument. Like, the court usually holds parties to the arguments they've actually made, not the ones the justices have conjured for them. And if that's the basis on which the court now upholds these maps— and let's Alabama use those maps, it's going to look pretty bad, I think, for anyone who votes for that result. I just add 
two things if I can. First, I think if Kavanaugh and, and even Roberts want to try to kind of limit the scope of Allen, they have an opportunity to in the South Carolina redistricting case that's coming up this term, right, where they can essentially impose these equal protection constraints on race conscious redistricting and try to guard against what Justice Kavanaugh seemed to be concerned about in, in Allen v. Milligan. But I'll also say I'm I'm optimistic, maybe a little bit more so than Steve, that the five justice majority in Milligan will stick to its guns here, in part because Alabama has now turned this case into one about the Supreme Court's own power, right? The Supreme Court affirmed the district court's decision. This was like something John Roberts tried to make very clear in his majority opinion. He ended like every other paragraph with, we affirm the district court. The district court said Alabama must create a new map with two majority black districts or something quite close to it. Alabama said no to that and instead came back with a map that did not comply with the order. And I mean, arguably even worse, devised this whole theory that like, Every time there's a new map that the district court has to go through all of this analysis and basically hold a trial and all of this stuff that would allow states to evade Supreme Court review forever. I don't think that Kavanaugh and Roberts like that. I think that they'll have other opportunities to free states like Alabama to resume racist gerrymandering if they please. This is not the opportunity to pull back and essentially signal to the world like, hey, if we rule against you, you can just come back and we'll rule for you quietly because we aren't even consistent or principled enough to stay with our arguments for four months, five months until the ink is dry. I would just add that Kavanaugh, as much as anyone, except maybe Roberts, cares about just this kind of thing and looking like they're good guys. And I also want to note, is this an irony? It's just a fact that whereas you have the justices on both sides, the Breyer book and the, and Thomas all protesting and insisting on the bromide that they're all both collegial and driven by neutral principles, litigants on both sides, like Alabama, are th thinking exactly these terms because they're the real terms. All right. It's a very good segue to thinking more generally about the court. In fact, let me start here with this idea. You know, it seems like just a very short summer ago, <laughs> we were engaged in the sort of flip side of the point we started with about the foibles of the curtain raiser, which was uh, these retrospective discussions that included, hey, court's often unanimous, and look at this case in which, you know, Gorsuch joined Sotomayor, and I found those discussions frustrating and sort of unilluminating because these terms were all about the kinds of big cases. We have looked at three cases where the 11th Circuit and 5th Circuit may well be reversed and where things will therefore play as the retrenchment or return of something of moderation in the court. And I take it people in this discussion would say that those reports of the court's moderation will be exaggerated, yes? I would defer to Steve because I think he's written comprehensively about what it means that the court controls its own docket and how people fail to understand that the court doesn't have to take any cases. The court quite deliberately chooses its cases in order to tell a story about the kind of court it is. The one thing I'll say before he says all that in a fulsome and profound way is simply that, you know, and I, I remember saying this on your show at the end of last term, Harry, like not getting punched in the face isn't a win. I think we keep forgetting that the court takes these extraordinary cases and then does something 
that looks quote unquote moderate, except no court in history would have ever heard this case because these ideas are insane. So we are watching, to use Steve's terminology, the Overton window absolutely change around us. And this slavish adherence to the, I'm totting up, it was five to four, or I'm looking at all the times where this justice agreed with this justice, or look at what an absolute moderate Justice Kavanaugh is. All of that coverage is a vestige from a time when we had a Powell slash O'Connor slash Kennedy court with the moderate justice who was genuinely capable of moving. The idea that we're now looking at a court with a 6-3 supermajority that unfailingly delivers huge, huge wins for the conservative legal movement that birthed it and funded it and seeded it is part of the thing I think we're trying to get out of. But I'm going to let Steve just talk about the docket because I think that's the best way to explain this. No, I mean, it's just, it's a denominator problem where we are often talking about the court as if the cases it decides were thrust upon it. When the reality is that each of the last four terms, the court has decided fewer than 60 cases, a total it had not dipped below since 1864. And, you know, part of what's going on here is Dahlia mentioned the 6-3 majority. What that means is it is now impossible for the Democratic appointees to force a case onto the court's docket. Which takes four votes. Which takes four votes. And so what that means is that there are plenty of decisions by federal courts of appeals that the justices might like the bottom line of, but aren't necessarily thrilled about the reasoning in, where they can just deny cert and say, you know, we'll leave this be the law of the land. We won't take the cases that are really messy. And what that means, Harry, is that Yes, we should sort of accurately report what the court is doing in the cases it takes, but we should also accurately report that these are cases the justices chose to take for some reason. And so what that means in sort of the broader strokes is that if at the end of the term, Mark's prediction turns out to be right, that the one of the big themes is the court slapping down the Fifth Circuit, that's not going to be sort of a random cross-section of cases. That's going to be in cases where the Fifth Circuit sort of said, hey, court, stop us if you can. And the court says, okay, it's the Steve Reinhardt, they can't overrule me all the time mentality, <laughs> but now in the other direction. And so the moral there to me is not, oh, the court is moderate, right? The moral there to me would be, oh, my gosh, the Fifth Circuit has lost its mind, And that's a different story than, oh, you know, look how unpredictable the Supreme Court is. It's incredibly predictable if you account for how much the justices are controlling what we're predicting. Just one example of of that problem that I think is really illustrative of of the broader phenomenon. So a couple of years ago, the Supreme Court issued this decision in a case called Flowers versus Mississippi, where Justice Brett Kavanaugh got to play the role of racial justice hero. And he got to stand up and talk about this case where this obviously racist prosecutor had struck black people from the jury and over and over and over again. And the defendant was black. And Kavanaugh said, obviously, this was racist. And we're throwing all of this out because under Batson, this famous precedent, you can't strike people because of their skin color. Well, that was a great decision. It got praise from many people, including me. Didn't necessarily have an impact on the ground in Mississippi very much because Mississippi prosecutors- Or in the country. Or in the country, because prosecutors have continued to be racist and strike black jurors 
The problem has been persistent in Mississippi. And another case came up to the court this last term where a racist prosecutor had struck black jurors and gotten a conviction of the black defendant. And it was so obviously a violation of flowers. It was so obviously a, a quintessential situation where the court should step in and say no. The Mississippi Supreme Court had refused to do so because it's very conservative. And the conservatives ignored it. And all the three liberal justices dissented. And there was a very strong dissent from Justice Sotomayor saying we should have taken on this case and solved this problem. But the conservatives just didn't. And so even when the court does good things, it can have a really muted impact when the four liberals can't sort of hold the conservatives to their word and insist that these precedents be applied consistently across the board. Fair enough. And I'll make a sort of corollary point that I think is important and something to keep in mind as cases come up, which is there's a brand of cases that are very fact-specific, and the court in striking down, even with great sort of moral dudgeon, a particular act is, is not really reframing anything big in the law. And then others where big principles, including the revision of major principles, are involved, those I think I would just agree with Dahlia in, you know, in every important uh, case I can think of there, with the possible exception of possible of Section uh, 2 voting rights case, uh, you know, are, are really reliably tub-thumping victories for the new super-conservative supermajority. And now, a word from our sponsor, the American Civil Liberties Union. My name is Malita Picasso, and I'm a staff attorney at the ACLU's LGBTQ and HIV Project, where we work to defend trans people's safety, dignity, and health care across the country. This includes litigation to protect trans youth in Arkansas, Texas, and other states trying to ban their access to life-saving health care. The onslaught of anti-trans bills pushed through state legislatures throughout the nation is truly unprecedented and directly harms a community that already experiences high rates of violence, harassment, and discrimination. As we track and fight these bills, we need your support. Help us build communities where trans youth feel loved and supported. Visit aclu.org LGBTQ to learn more and get involved. All right, it is now time for a spirited debate brought to you by our sponsor, Total Wine and More. Each episode, you'll be hearing an expert talk about the pros and cons of a particular issue in the world of wine, spirit, and beverages. Thank you, Harry. In today's spirited debate, Bordeaux and Napa face off, pitting the Bordeaux Reds against the California Cabs. From a numbers standpoint, the Bordeaux region is the clear winner with more wineries and higher production of bottles, producing nearly six and a half times more wine than Napa. But more doesn't necessarily mean better. Bordeaux wines are a blend of five different grapes. The Bordeaux region is actually divided by an estuary and two rivers forming the left bank and the right bank. Left bank wines are predominantly Cabernet Sauvignon based, featuring more tannins and bigger overall structure. Right bank wines are predominantly Merlot based, richer in fruit, with a softer mouthfeel and less tannin and acidity. Now, much like the left bank, 
Napa wines are predominantly Cabernet Sauvignon and well-known for their rich, bold style. Many of these wines are also blends, but you can also find 100% varietal wines from Napa. So whether you're Team Bordeaux or Team Napa, your local Total Wine & More has a huge selection so you can enjoy the best of both worlds at a price that won't break the left or right bank. So find what you love and love what you find. Only at Total Wine & More. Cheers! Thanks to our friends at Total Wine & More for today's A Spirited Debate. So look, this all raises the sort of broader question of the court's relationship to public opinion. You see Alito famously in the last term basically showing contempt for the idea. They're a court after all, counter-majoritarian. And we have the courts, the public confidence in the court, not just eroding, but seemingly plummeting. So what? Why should people who care about the court care? It was the subject of a lot of controversy, say, in the 60s. Also, it does serve the counter-majoritarian purpose. Is it a crisis for the court and society? And if so, why? So yes, this is a crisis for the court and for society. Why? Almost all of the Supreme Court's power is soft power, not hard power. The justices might try to argue to the contrary, but the justices depend on the political branches for everything from paying their constitutionally required salaries to turning off the lights. Just one really, really small but telling data point, the Supreme Court's appropriations request for FY 2024 is $151 million. 98% of that is discretionary, right? Suppose Congress says, we're not passing your budget until you adopt an ethics code. The court depends upon soft power because it's soft power that makes its pronouncements enforceable. It's soft power that leads Eisenhower to send the army into Little Rock to enforce Brown. It's soft power that keeps Congress from using the budget as a cudgel. It's soft power that's why we follow the court, even if not especially when we disagree with it. And, you know, there are plenty of progressives who think that the solution to the court's sharp turn to the right and toward unaccountability is just to blow the place up. I understand that position. I just think that we need a court. And we need a court that is actually perceived as legitimate, especially with a potentially very divisive democracy in the balance presidential election coming next year that could come down to litigation after the election in one or two tipping point states. What would it mean for the country, right, if you have a court, the decisions of which are, you know, automatically rejected by half the populace? And so that's where the ethics piece is part of this. That's where Justice Alito telling the Wall Street Journal he doesn't think Congress can regulate the court, period, is a telling if preposterous thing for a sitting justice to say. And it's part of why I think even the Ed Whalens of the world should actually be a little worried about the court's declining legitimacy, because even if it means short-term wins, it means nothing good in the long term, either for the court or for the country. I want to associate myself with the comments of Professor Vladek and just say, more than anyone, I object to the characterization that people who are raising these ethics questions and legitimacy questions and questions about judicial conduct and misconduct want to blow up the court. I think most of us come at this from a place of deeply, deeply needing the rule of law in this country to persist in a moment of profound instability. And the idea that we think we can just go it without a Supreme Court for which the nation has regard is terrifying. 
And the other thing I want to say is this is just the most galactic self-own in the history of the judiciary because every single thing that is going wrong right now, be it the Dobbs leak, be it these just shocking malfeasance, the refusal to just simply disclose and then to say, oopsie, while you try to catch up with ethics, with ethics rules from decades ago, and the refusal to say we will abide by and create a code of ethics that is binding on this court as it is for the rest of the Article Three judiciary. Every single one of those things is a self-own on the part of the judiciary. And to turn around and blame academics or journalists who want to destabilize the court is just the most monstrous piece of deflection and blame the messenger. So I just think the court either doesn't understand how necessary it is for us to have a legitimate court. I'm here to say it. It's super necessary. But if it does understand that it's necessary and thinks it can keep up the stunt of taking million-dollar junkets and loans for your grandnephew's schooling and paying for your mom's house and all of that is fine because America is going to just keep blaming Politico, I just think that is the single most short-sighted piece of judgment by a so-called judiciary that I have witnessed in my career. I'll just say, you know, great points, of course, by Dolly and Steve. These justices, especially the conservatives, are very much locked in an echo chamber these days. People like Justice Alito are really only, I think, having meaningful conversations with folks who not only agree with them, but laud them and praise them as heroes of the Constitution. And I think that Regardless of the wisdom of doing that as a general matter, it's really dangerous for a judge because you start to think that you are infallible, that everything you do must be correct, and especially for someone like Alito, that you're a really good politician. And it turns out he's not. These guys aren't politicians. None of them were. You know, we used to have justices who were politicians, but that doesn't happen anymore. And so instead, what we have is this kind of blundering among folks like Thomas and Alito trying to feel their way toward a public defense that just digs them in deeper and sounds a lot worse. And so I think, like, they may think they're above politics. They may think that they're outside the system of checks and balances. They may think that the country will forever and always embrace and enforce their decisions. They are wrong, and they are not especially good at making that point and driving it home. And so I think that, you know, if I were one of those justices, I would be deeply concerned about my ability to hold on to power because the country is learning how far outside the norm this court is going. The country doesn't like what it sees. The public opinion polls are dismal and have remained so for months now. And there's trouble ahead if the court does not turn around the ship somehow. Yeah, I think it's an important point, and I'll just add, I think a kind of consequence of deep polarization and siloing of law as well as everything else is that the justices, each, even especially the ones who went through bruising confirmation battles, actually live in their own silos so that when they're not at the court, as you say, they're dinners and conferences and the like are places where they are lionized and their ability to kind of take in the broader sense of what people overall are reacting to. You know, it just seems they are in many ways muted or shielded from it. 
We are out of time for this episode and this year's preview of the upcoming Supreme Court term. Thank you very much to Dahlia, Steve, and Mark. And thank you very much, listeners, for tuning in to Talking Feds. If you like what you've heard, please tell a friend to subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts or wherever they get their podcasts. And please take a minute to rate and review this podcast. You can also now subscribe to us on YouTube, where we're posting full episodes, talking books, and other bonus video content. You can follow us on Twitter at TalkingFedsPod, and you can look to see our latest offerings on Patreon, where we post bonus discussions with national experts about special topics exclusively for our supporters. Talking Feds is a completely independent production, so if you like the work we do and are inclined to support the show, joining our Patreon is the best way to do it. Submit your questions to questions at TalkingFeds.com, whether they're for Talking Five or general questions about the inner workings of the legal system for our sidebar segments. Thanks for tuning in, and don't worry, as long as you need answers, the Feds will keep talking. Talking Feds is produced by Mal Meliez, associate produced by Catherine Devine, sound engineering by Matt McArdle, our research producer is Zeke Reed. Rosie Don Griffin and David Lieberman are our contributing writers. Production assistance by Meredith McCabe, Akshaj Turbailu, and Emma Maynard. And our gratitude, as always, to the amazing Philip Glass, who graciously lets us use his music. Talking Fez is a production of Delito LLC. I'm Harry Littman. Talk to you later.